what is the scriptural basis for the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, and which cults explicitly or implicitly deny this doctrine. We're going to talk about these things and more today on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Thursday, May the 7th of 2009, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and I want to welcome you to our next lesson in our Knowing God series. We're so glad to have you guys here with us. Hopefully, you listened to last week's lesson Uh, or the the previous lesson on the unity of God before you get to this one, because that's really part one of this series, and it's very important that you listen to that one before you listen to this one. So if you haven't listened to our lesson on God's unity, make sure you go ahead and just stop now and go back and listen to that lesson first. But if you've already listened to that one, then welcome. I'm so glad to have you guys here with me today. It's such a blessing. Uh, As you guys know, uh, maybe you know, if you listen to our our lesson on Monday, uh, I am actually out in Charlotte, North Carolina today. I'm recording this on Tuesday, so uh, it's not really Thursday for me. But anyway, (laughs) uh, I'm going to be graduating from seminary this weekend, and man, what what an honor and what a, a joy to be done. But at the same time, you know what? I am just, uh, I don't know. It's kind of weird to be done with school after you've been doing it for so long. And, you know, I'm going to take a couple years off and I'm probably going to go after my doctorate of ministry from Dallas Theological Seminary here in a couple years. Uh, No no telling exactly when uh, that's going to be. Two, three years, maybe, maybe even a little bit more. But I do eventually plan on going back to school again. Uh, for some of us, I guess we're just like gluttons for punishment, and we love to learn. So <laughs> anyway, uh, before we get started real quick, I wanted to remind you guys that this month, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more is going to get a copy of Norman and David Geisler's new book called Conversational Evangelism. This book, I just can't say enough good things about it, but if in case you missed uh, Monday's lesson when I was talking about why I want you guys to have this, it's because, well, especially if you're listening today, you probably like apologetics. You're probably really into apologetics, right? And if you are, you know that it's not as easy as just walking up to somebody and giving them you know, the, the five ways that we know about God from Thomas Aquinas or uh, giving them the cosmological argument or the anthropic principle or any of those things. You can't just walk up to somebody and do that. Uh, most people won't give you an ear. And this book is really teaching us how to uh, how to make bridges to those people. Instead of using apologetics as a wall for the faith, it's about making apologetics a bridge to non-believers. And this book gives you almost everything you need for uh, for this strategy. It's fantastic. Uh, there's not another book that I recommend more than this one, except maybe I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So. Anyway, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more between now and the end of May 2009 is going to get a copy of this book sent to you. So if you want to do that, all you have to do is go to BibleStudyPodcast.org, and on the right-hand side you'll see a support box, and you can make a donation through PayPal right there on our website. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with today's lesson with a quick word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we just thank you again so much for your word. We thank you that you are true. We thank you that we can know you personally uh, through both reason and scripture. Lord, our goal in this uh, in this study is to know more about you, to learn more about you, in order that we can be drawn closer to you. So, Lord, I pray that this lesson would be the means to that end today. May we glorify you in our lives and in our thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our previous lesson, we established the fact that Scripture teaches that there is only one God. We call it God's unity. That's what we discussed in our previous lesson. But historical Orthodox Christianity also affirms that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three completely distinct persons in God. They are all of one essence, one substance, and one nature, but they are distinct in their personhood. So they, uh, so God is one essence, one substance, one nature, and three persons. You want to memorize that. That is very key to understanding the Trinity. Now, this shouldn't be understood to mean that there are three gods. Uh, that would actually be the heresy of tritheism, which Mormonism teaches, as we briefly discussed in our previous lesson on God's unity. And it also shouldn't be misunderstood to mean that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three manifestations of God, or, or modes of God, as modern-day heretics like uh, like T.D. Jakes and the popular group Phillips, Craig, and Dean profess, these are all members of the Oneness Pentecostal cult, T.D. Jakes and Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Uh, this is a heresy called modalism. Well, there are three primary Christian cults which explicitly deviate from this doctrine of the Trinity. That would be, first of all, the Mormons, who are tritheists. They believe that uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actually three totally separate gods who are of uh, three natures, three essences, three substances. And then there are oneness Pentecostals, which, as I mentioned just a moment ago, are modalists. And then there are the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are Arians. They, uh, they commit the Arian heresy, which was a denial of Christ's deity. They teach that Jesus was not God. Rather, they teach that Jesus was a created being or an angel, right? So while Mormonism doesn't explicitly deny the doctrine of the Trinity, they do deny it implicitly, since they teach that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different gods. They just never come out and say something like, you know, we outright reject the idea of the Trinity. Uh, The Oneness Pentecostal and Jehovah's Witness cults, however, explicitly reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Why? Well, you know, one of the main reasons that they will typically give is that the word Trinity is never found in the Bible. Uh, just to give you guys a quick response to that, uh, first of all, a uh, uh, response to the one is Pentecostal cult. The Bible also doesn't have the word mode or manifestation in it either, and these are two words that they like to use in reference to God. Uh, and the response to Jehovah's Witnesses is that the name Jehovah actually never appears in the original languages of the Bible either. So the fact that the word Trinity never appears in the Bible uh, is really kind of a Uh, At the best, it's an argument from silence, and logically speaking, you know, we should always remember that omission, in other words, uh, leaving a word out or an idea out, is never to be confused with a denial. Omission is never the same as a denial. 
So nevertheless, this is an argument that's worth addressing, this whole issue of the word Trinity not being found in the Bible, because it really does confuse a lot of Christians. You know, a lot of critics will say that this is a late doctrine, that this this doctrine of the Trinity is, is late, that it wasn't something that was professed by the early church. And the thing is, they're right. You know, it took time for this doctrine to develop. Why is that? Well, first of all, we have to consider the fact that the first, second, and early third century church didn't have a definitive canon of scripture. They had many writings, uh, but the church as a whole hadn't come together for the purpose of discerning between which books were scripture and which weren't. And secondly, the fact that God is a trinity only became clear when putting all the books which were determined to be scripture together. Uh, How that was determined is the subject for another lesson on another day, but basically that's what was required. When you put all the books of scripture together, the books that were determined to be scripture uh, together, you get the idea that God is a trinity. Well, with this in mind, what is the biblical basis for the trinity? Since scripture never explicitly states that there are three persons in the one God. Well, there are three things that we have to keep in mind when we're talking about the Trinity. And that is, first of all, A, that there is only one God. B, there is biblical evidence that there are three persons in God. And C, evidence that these three divine persons are one or have unity. Well, we already established the first principle in our previous lesson, and that is that there's only one God. So let's go ahead and address the second idea here, that there is biblical evidence that there are three persons in God. Now, the first thing that we would have to ask logically is what exactly constitutes a quote-unquote person anyway? Well, personhood is traditionally defined as consisting of three things, intellect, emotion, and will, or the inherent potential for these qualities. And, you know, if we don't add this as a footnote, then someone who is unconscious and thus has no active emotion or will uh, couldn't be considered to be a person. But I think we can all agree that that would be a bunch of nonsense. So, you know, it's crucial that we note that having the inherent potential or capacity for intellect, emotion, and will is sufficient for defining what a quote-unquote person is is. So, do the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each have these three qualities? Absolutely. Let's take a brief look at what Scripture tells us, and that's what we're going to be spending uh, this lesson doing. And by doing so, we will establish that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each persons. Well, first of all, Scripture reveals that the Father is a person. On how many occasions does Jesus refer to the Father as he or him? You know, multiple times. Well, the Father is said to have intellect, as evidenced by the fact that Matthew chapter 6, verse 4 tells us that, quote, Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, the Greek word that gets translated as sees can also be translated as discerns or observes. And so, obviously, in order to, to do those types of things, one must have intellect. And further, when Jesus is speaking about the day of his return, he says, quote, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. That's Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, and also Mark chapter 13, verse 32. So in order for the Father to know when Jesus is coming back, he obviously must have intellect, right? 
uh, in Second Corinthians chapter eleven verse thirty-one, Paul writes, "The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying." Again, to know something or anything requires intellect. So, therefore, the Father must have intellect. The Father also has emotion. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, we read, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Well, obviously, this is speaking metaphorically uh, or anthropomorphically to an extent, since uh, God doesn't have a literal physical heart. But since pain is an emotion and God is feeling pain in some sense here, the father must have emotion. The father also has the emotion of compassion. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He goes on to say in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? This is telling us that God has compassion, that the Father has compassion, which indicates both his intellect and his emotion. Uh, The Father also has the emotion of satisfaction. In Matthew 11, uh, verse 26, Jesus says, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. He's also said to have the emotion of love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Uh, there's the emotion of love right there. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we read, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. In First John chapter 2, verse 15, we read, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So clearly, you know, scripture does attribute both intellect and emotion to God the Father. And finally, scripture attributes a will to the Father. Uh, You know, part of the Lord's prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. He also says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 14, Jesus says, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, that's in verse 39 of Matthew chapter 26. And then he goes on to say in verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then in John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So clearly scripture teaches that the father has uh, intellect, emotion, and a will. Well, what about the son? What about God the son? Does scripture teach uh, that he also has intellect, emotion, and will? Absolutely. When Jesus approached the man at the pool called Hebrew Bethesda, John writes, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? That's John chapter 5, verse 6. So he knew 
that he had been there a long time. In John chapter 6, verse 64, we read that, quote, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Uh, Further evidence of the son's intellect is the fact that he speaks and he interacts with others throughout uh, the gospel narratives. He also taught, which requires intellect. So clearly, the son, Jesus, has intellect. Uh, Jesus is also said to have emotion. Anybody know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? It's John 11.35, which says, Jesus wept. He also has the emotion of compassion, as evidenced by the fact that he asked the Father to forgive those who were crucifying him out of their own ignorance. He was compassionate towards them. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, we read, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Jesus also had the emotion of love. He loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. That's from John chapter 11 verse 5. He also loves his own to the end according to John chapter 13 verse 1. And John refers to himself several times as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it's just beyond obvious that scripture teaches both intellect and emotion are attributes that the son has. Uh, The son also has a will, as we saw in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. And further in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So there's no question about either the Father or the Son. They're both said to have uh, the attributes of intellect, emotion, and will. Uh, The Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, is also said to have intellect. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In Luke chapter 12, verse 12, Jesus says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So obviously, you know, in in order for, uh, for one to teach, one must have intellect. The Holy Spirit is said to have the ability to teach, and thus he must have intellect. Further, the Holy Spirit leads. He led Jesus into the wilderness, for example, in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. Finally, uh, the Holy Spirit also seals believers, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which also requires intellect, right? Since he has to have uh, the ability to discern between believers and non-believers. There's intellect there. Uh, the Holy Spirit also has emotion. Paul warns of believers uh, grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Grieving. Uh, I mean, grief is obviously an emotion, right? So, uh, so the Holy Spirit clearly has emotion. Uh, the Holy Spirit also has a will. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, where Paul is discussing spiritual gifts, that all these, uh, that's gifts he's talking about, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them, that is, gifts, to each one, just as he determines. So in order to have the capacity for one to determine or give anything, one must have a will. And so therefore, the Holy Spirit clearly has all of the attributes of personhood 
according to scripture. He has intellect, emotion, and a will. Uh, Dr. Geisler, in his Systematic Theology Volume 2 book, which, by the way, if you want this uh, you know, magnified, if you want to read even more about this stuff, definitely pick up this book, Systematic Theology, Volume 2. Anyway, in his book, he adds that, quote, the activities of a person are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. He searches, knows, speaks, testifies, reveals, convinces, commands, strives, moves, helps, guides, creates, recreates, sanctifies, inspires, intercedes, orders the affairs of the church, and performs miracles, end quote. You know, these are all things that are a combination of emotion, intellect, and will. So, you know, there's no question about it. The Holy Spirit is a person. So does this settle the issue of the Trinity? Well, not at all, sadly. Uh, The Oneness Pentecostal and Jehovah's Witness cults both have all of these same things in their Bibles, too. But nevertheless, the Oneness Pentecostals believe that the Scriptures teach that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all just different modes or manifestations of the same God who's just one person. So where do we get evidence that there's a distinction between them? And the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they they have these same things in their Bibles as well, and they nevertheless hold a position which allows them to believe that Jesus is just a created being. He's not God, though. He's a created being, and he's higher than, uh, than, than we are, but he's not God. So how do we know that Jesus is God, and is he fully God? These are all questions that we've got to address before we move on from uh, discussing the Trinity. And we're going to talk about that in our next lesson uh, on BibleStudyPodcast.org. We've got a lot to cover on this one because this can be a very complicated attribute of God for us to understand. So our goal is to do that. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening today. If you have any questions, of course, you can email me. My email is cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And I do want to remind you guys that if you're on Facebook or MySpace, you can add me on there, add me to your network on there by just doing a search for that email address. So anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus.